Good morning. Who are all you people? Wow. I don't know if I can do that the whole sermon. The further in the corner you are, the better looking I get. Um, okay, so this is obviously, as apparently most of you are aware, is a key day. Uh, and in Christianity, some people nowadays, we would typically, people would say, in Christianity, this is an important day, but actually the belief in Christianity is that this is a vital day for everyone of all time. Visible creation, visible creation, all of it. Everything is changed on this day when uh, Pike Weiser and I, who's the, he's the pastor of First Baptist downtown, when we used to plan sermons together uh, here, we would say, what, what do we want to call the Easter service? And every single year we wanted to call it, this changes everything. Like that needed to be the name of the sermon every single year for this series. And because it kind of does. And then we realized that, well, that could kind of be the sermon title every week, hopefully. The, um, uh, this is why the early Christians would use that. What John, when he got up on stage and, and started, the greeting, a common greeting among Christians was that statement. Uh, um, that one, one would say, he is risen. And the other would say, yeah, that's, this is important. This is who we are. Um, and for those of you who are guests or, or even first-time guests or something like that, and you're thinking, man, this place is too crowded, um, you come back next week, and you'll be fine. It'll be, there'll be plenty of room, um, real, especially this 9 o'clock service. There's, it, it won't be so bad, I promise. It's, uh, that's, it's kind of a funny thing. I think it scares a lot of people. They go, oh, my gosh, it's so crowded. We can't go there. It's, it's all right. It's all right. Um, we, we aren't anything different, hopefully, this morning, except for the numbers. That's the only thing that's actually kind of different this morning. Um, in fact, uh, I told Ginger yesterday, I was so excited about teaching through the beginning of John 13, because that's where we are. In a, we've been doing John, the book of John, for about a year and a half, and we've probably got about another year, I'd, I'd guess, left. And, uh, and you get to, I, I, I was so excited about teaching John 13 that I literally, in my sermon, forgot to mention that it was Easter in the sermon anywhere. So this is... If you are a guest, this is, this is us. You're meeting the, pretty much the real us, um, except that Micah's in a suit. I saw Micah's, that's, that's kind of the only real difference this morning. It looks sharp though, doesn't he? Man. All right, so um, uh, I don't own one. The, um, that's not true. I do. No, most of you wouldn't know it, but the, uh, um, I, when I do your funeral, I'll wear it. Um, so this isn't anything different. Um, this is if, you're, if you braved it, especially if you braved it alone, guests, I mean, you rock, that is, it is really hard to come to a new place, um, if you're, especially if you're not normally go to church and that kind of stuff, that's, it's, it can be really tough, and I would, really, I would strongly encourage you, um, what, what makes church, the local church special, um, is the community aspect of it, and so um, you're, you're, getting, you're going to be, if, if you're only coming once or twice a year or something like that, you're missing out on the main power of what the local church is. Um, everything you can do, worship and learning and teaching and, and evangelizing and ministering and all the different important things that it is that God calls us to do, you can do most of them um, on a mountaintop just with you and God. In fact, for many of us, that would be the strongest place to experience some of those things. But what you can't do is do those things in community on a mountaintop um, if it's just you. And so we really encourage you um, to keep it up and keep coming and get invested and get involved. Um, it, it is fascinating how, for example, as a therapist, um, it was interesting to me that that, being, that claiming to be born again or claiming to be a Christian does not affect the numbers of, of whether or not you're likely to get divorced or, or there to be infidelity in your marriage or, or all abuse and all that kind of stuff. But people who are engaged and involved and who seek to live out the Christian life in community, all of those numbers get better for them. And there's something powerful not just about claiming it but living it. So I really want to encourage you as we jump in today with what we're talking about. Um, so what we've been doing, talking about John... 
as we talk through these people and we go through, one of the cool things about the book of John is that you get to engage with the fact that this is a real live person. And they come across as real live people because they were. These, this isn't the little old lady who lived in a shoe or Jack B. Nimble or something like that. This is, this is, this is, these are real people who walked around a couple of thousand years ago on the planet and they act like it. Today's part of what we're going to talk about today is a humorous interaction between Jesus Christ and one of the disciples. And they're doing it. They're, they're, they're acting this out. They're living this out kind of like we would. They feel very real to us because they, they are. They were. And John really shows that. In some neat ways. It's part of what we love about the book of John. Also, John is, at the same time, it's kind of a theological textbook. It's a, it's a specific text meant to teach us specific things. So it's not the full-born uh, you know, full narrative of everything that happened in Jesus' life. In fact, John says that, that it isn't. And yet, we, there's so much we can learn about what John, so who John was. John was a, probably a very young man when he was following Jesus around on earth for a few years, one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and so as he's following, and, and we don't know for sure, it doesn't tell us, but we know that it's AD 30 something when he's following Jesus around, and we know that John was still writing probably in the AD 90s. So that's a 60 year gap. He couldn't have been 60 when he met Jesus. Um, that put him at 120, 130 years old. That's, you're, you're thinking deep Old Testament with those type of ages, right? This isn't, this is, this is New Testament. This is, this is, this guy was probably more like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old when he was wandering around with Jesus on the, on the earth. And so here you have, he has had all these years to think about this, to think back on it, to discuss it with the other disciples who were there, and to, and to really dig into this. And he spent years alone on an island where he was captured and, and sent for many years to get to think and pray and really dig into this stuff. So we get this deeper theological text. You may not know this, but Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a faith founded on reason and rationality as well as the revelation of God. That's why the revelation of God comes in form of this big old book. Speaking of which, if you don't have one of these books, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, I recommend you grab one of the ones out of the, one of the seats and take it home with you. That's, that's our gift to you. If you need a, a different type or a different version or something, just let us know. We'll help you get that. It's that important to us. The importance of living this out, and John lived it out in community. And so um, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospels that John was not directly involved in, though he's in them, he's a character in them, he's a person in them, he uses them. He actually quotes them in his gospel. And so we know that he had these things in front of him. This was a community event for John, engaging with this and writing this material. That's, that's part of why it's so fascinating. If you read it as a textbook, I hope that you learn to read it differently than that. If you read it as a magic book, you just keep a copy of the Bible in your house to chase away evil spirits, you're thinking jack-o'-lanterns. That's a totally different thing. Like, that's, that's not what the Bible's for. It won't accomplish that for you. Reading it, getting engaged in it, learning. And that's why we spend so much time on Sunday morning, pretty much every Sunday morning, diving into it. And uh, we may be in John for a long time. We're just now getting into some of the teachings of Jesus. Man, that may really slow us down. He, uh, he says some important stuff a lot together. In the specific book of John, so if those of you who are at the 730 service where we did all the baptisms, uh, Chris Sherrod, um, our minister of discipleship, he taught this morning and he used passages out of Romans and connected them to baptism and salvation and showed quite literally the logical linear argument of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to accept his salvation. Um, that's part of what this is about. So if you were raised in a version of Christianity that Christianity was not like that, um, then we have a new stuff to introduce to you. John tells us, for example, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, what, why he chose the, the stories and accounts that he chose 
from the life of Jesus. He says, he's, he's not being sneaky about this. He's not, there's no hidden agenda here. It's right out on the table. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he picked the, the stories and accounts that he did. That's why he, he has what he has in this book. And you get to read it with this in mind. He's trying to convince you and persuade you this is the right choice. This is the way to go. So we've been doing this for, again, almost a year and a half, and we're up to John 13. So today we start a new chapter, John 13. And, in John, and the chapters and verses were added in much later. That's not how John would have written it. This wasn't John saying this is chapter 13. This is uh, writers later adding these verses in so we could study them more easily. But in the story, we've got John coming up to this point. We have seen Jesus accomplish incredible things, um, unbelievable things, unless he's the son of God. Unless the power of God courses through him, what he's doing is not reasonable. But if he is God, then it makes sense. That's the whole point. So we have seen him in the last few chapters. We've seen him heal a man born blind. We've seen him turn a very few things into a whole bunch of things to feed thousands of people. We've seen, for example, in chapter 11, him raise a man who was dead back to life. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. Unless you're God, you can't do stuff like that. Unless the power of God is working through you, you can't do that. That's the whole point. So when you read it, you go, that doesn't make any sense. No one can raise someone from the dead. I mean, unless they're God or something. Right. Nailed it. Perfect. All right. So then with chapter 12 was, here's what you're supposed to do with that. You are to glorify him. Or to live this out, that was last week, for those of you who are here. Now, here we are in John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover. Stop there real quick. You're in the middle of the feast of the Passover in 2019 right now. The feast of Passover is, on, is going right now, um, and it will be wrapping up Friday. Is that right? Um, wrapping up on Friday when they will do their Passover feast. We do a Passover here every couple of years, um, and so that's this year. Uh, we did a, a Maundy Thursday, which is to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, that when Jesus gives the command, Maundy means command, when he gives the command to love one another, um, his kind of 11th commandment, this is my commandment, that you love one another, this is the, that's the idea, um, and so then next year, Lord willing, we'll be doing a Passover feast um, to experience and celebrate and understand what's going on with this, um, but for today, we just talk about it some so that you know. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world... To the Father, being loved by his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His own. That's what's talking about here. His disciples, his followers, probably especially his 12, the sons of light, his little children, his students, his followers. Jesus was a, a rabbi who had a class that followed him around everywhere. Sometimes there were thousands. Sometimes there was a dozen. Um, he handpicked a dozen of them to follow them. He's concerned for them. Will he leave them as orphans? Will he leave them in the world like sheep among wolves? He knows it's coming up quickly, his hour to depart, and he's concerned for them. Now, this is fascinating. He knew that his hour had come. Now, this phrase, especially if you've not been here, or you've not read John recently, won't mean as much to you, but if you've been through our series in John, you realize this is a big deal. We have seen time after time, John chapter two, verse four, and Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 7, 6, and Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. 
John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We've talked about this. That the apostle John, in writing this book, in writing this narrative about Jesus, is pointing out, Jesus is the one in charge here. No one else is in charge in John. In John. No one else is in charge, just Jesus. Jesus, as, as God himself, is, has the authority. He is the one moving himself to the cross. This is his responsibility. He's getting to the cross. He said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. And by the way, then I take it back up. And that's a neat trick. Any of us can lay our lives down. That's not special. But if you've got the power to take it up again, that's good news. So he, he says that. No one else is going to do this. He's going to do this. And we're going to see over the next few chapters how Jesus is going to drag everyone to the cross. That's going to be Jesus doing that. So if you had in your mind that that's not how this worked, that is how this is going to play out. Jesus has said over and over again, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. And when we talked about those, I said, believe me, when, G when it's time, Jesus is going to make that really, really clear. You know what? Now it's time. You just read it. Jesus knows in his heart, now it is the hour. It is time. Um, I'm one of those people who, who I love working on something while I'm learning and experiencing it. Um, if any of you have ever been to a, a continuing education conference with me or, or training or something like that, you notice I, I get a lot done during those. It distracts enough of my brain where I can then focus and, and work hard on something and really engage. And I love what's going on. I used to have friends in seminary who would, um, <laughs> one in particular, who um, he, he would always sit by me. We were good friends. He would sit by me, especially in our eight o'clock class, and I would have my head down and be working on something and working on something, and, and he would be sitting there like focused in on everything the professor said, and I would be kind of working or whatever, and I would go, oh, hey, um, what you just said there, and every time I did it, it would scare my friend to death. It would startle him so badly every time, because he was like, I thought you weren't paying any attention. I thought you weren't like, that's how my brain works. My wife will tell you, that's the way my brain works, and so I love doing that. Well, I got to be here at the Monday, Thursday service on, in fact, Thursday night, and I got to work a little bit on the, some of the details, flesh out some of this sermon while sitting in a service celebrating, of all things, John chapter 13. That's cool. To get to sit there and experience and go through this, that's what was going on as I got to connect with these. Jesus' crucifixion is 48 hours away or less at the time what we're reading. Months, of course, months away for us as we're studying every detail. But John Redfern mentioned it that night. What would you do if you knew it was your final days? I said before, I think the main problem with midlife crises is that we, make, we wait until midlife to have them. I, I think a midlife crisis, the question, is this all there is? Is this what life is? Is this what it's supposed to be? We need to be doing that every week, starting about 16, 17 years old, like asking, like, is this it? Is this what it's gonna be? On my calendar, usually I have something that comes up on Fridays and it just says 365. And that's, if this is the last 365 days I have, what am I going to do with them? I want to trigger that midlife crisis every week. Jesus did know. His time was running out. So what's he going to do? John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. I talked about that. This is the second or third time John has mentioned that, that Judas' father's name is Simon. Simon's son. We don't know what, what that's all about. We don't know why that's there. But in a shame honor culture like Israel was 2,000 years ago, linking Judas's behavior to Simon is probably intentional. We don't know who Simon was, but John thinks it's worthy of mentioning that Judas and all the horror that Judas brought into the situation, he was Simon's son. 
It's kind of painful to read that. But Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. I'm going to stop. Stop there. We'll talk about the moral and Satan things in a minute. But here's what's wild. Listen to that A leading to B statement. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into the hand and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. You ask yourself, what's, what's going to happen next? Like what, in, your, in your mind, like when you go, what's it going to say next? Knowing that all things were in his power. Knowing that he had come from God and was going to go back to God. Jesus then built a giant temple. Like or or took over the minds of all the people, or a, I don't know. What, I don't know what your brain does. My, I just revealed some things about my heart. Huh? So it's like a. Uh, it's like what did, what did Jesus? What did Jesus do with this? Like here, he has realized all authority is his, all of it. God has put everything in his hands. What kind of a God are we dealing with here? Well, you're about to find out. What kind of a God are we dealing with? That is Jesus Christ experiencing life as a man, and he's learned to live as a man, which is shocking in and of itself. Now in this moment, the fullness of who he is is totally aware to him. There's no question John wants us to know with absolute certainty that by this point, Jesus was 100% aware of his authority and power and everything else. If he had any question, he wants it to be abundantly clear. So knowing that, knowing that, what does he do? The cosmic governance of the divine counsel of God was on him, fully aware of the victory he was about to win. He, verse four, rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Wow. This reveals to us something about the nature of the God who we claim to serve, who we claim to model our lives after. With the full power of of the authority of God like electricity in the end of his fingers. What is he gonna do with this? He's gonna wash his disciples' feet. As we go through the end of the book of John, I encourage you, as you're here and you're engaging with it, here's the question we're gonna run into time and again is this. Who is this guy? Who does this? Who is like this? And anyone whose name is Michael, your name means who is like God? Who does this stuff? And we're going to see it over and over again through the rest of John. That the, the, the proof of who he is is already laid in place, and now he's going to show what it means to live that out? Who, is, who does this? Who has all authority, and the authority has no power to corrupt them at all? None. I thought, I thought power corrupted. Well, it doesn't seem to touch him from a corruption perspective. It doesn't seem to hurt him at all. He's doing great. I mean, he's, in fact, he's a servant in the midst of being limitlessly powerful. So he comes to Simon Peter, verse 6, who says to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. So he, he gets up from the table. By the way, they would have been reclining, laying on their left side, eating with their right hand. And so, Jesus, they've all laid down. The implication here is they've been sitting there for a little while. They've all been, they've been laying there. And, and I think you're supposed to get, we're going to get here in a second, but I think you're supposed to think they've all been wondering, where's the foot washer? Who's going to wash people's feet? You don't, just, you don't just gather together and eat. 
Whoever, whoever was in charge of setting up the meal forgot to assign foot washing duty to somebody. They forgot to hire someone to be there to wash people's feet. So they're all sitting there going, oh, I'm not going to wash these people's feet. I'm not going to do that. I'm not. Who's going to wash people's feet? And I think I can imagine Jesus, the rabbi, he lets this go on for a little while. Who's going to do this? And then he gets up and starts doing it. And the minute he did, most of them would have been ashamed of the fact that he's the one doing it. So Peter, and John, it's a question. And the other disciples, and the other gospels, it's not a question. In Luke, I think it's, it's, Peter says like, no, no, you don't wash my feet. It has, that, it has that feeling of like, remember that when you were a kid when your mom would say, hey, could you go get me something? You're like, yeah, just a second. I need, really need you to go get that. Yeah, just a second. Could you go get that? Yeah, just, and then she goes and does it herself, and you're like, oh, oops. Bummer, right? One of us probably should have gotten up and done this. One of us probably, no, now the rabbi, the Lord, the Savior, Lord, what Peter calls him, the Lord has just gotten up and is going to wash their feet. It's, it's beautiful. It's incredible for us. But it was probably a more than just a little bit embarrassing for them. Um, he comes, oh, he, by the way, Peter was not first. I don't think it implies that. So he came to Simon Peter. I don't think Peter was first necessarily. In fact, at the structure of the table, we know that Peter was not right next to Jesus. And so at some point he starts and he starts doing this. Peter must be so used to this concept, by the way. Look at that phrase, what I'm doing, you do not understand. Peter's like, well, yeah, I never understand what you're doing. That's a, if, you, if you've read the Gospels, it's funny to me that one of the critiques is that the disciples would have made up the Gospels, and I'm like, yeah, then, then they really made themselves look terrible in the Gospels. They're almost the comedy routine. They're kind of the comic relief of the Gospels as the disciples, and we see one of them happening right now. This is a very real conversation. It feels real. He says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But afterwards, you will understand. I don't know if Peter understood what afterwards meant. After what, I will understand. Maybe he thought he meant after I wash your feet or after, the Lord, after, this, after Passover, you'll understand. Maybe, But I think it's pretty clear Jesus means in a few days, you'll understand. Right now, you don't get this. You don't understand that I'm sacrificing for you, and this is a tiny one. I'm washing your feet. In a few hours, I will be drained of my blood. This is nothing. You'll get it eventually. I'll explain it here in a minute, but you're not going to get it. So Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter didn't take his Ritalin uh, on Passover that year. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And, and you imagine Jesus going like, okay, Peter, like, Listen, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no share with me. So Simon Peter says, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Like, seriously, Peter, now would be a good time to stop talking. Like, you don't, you don't understand what I'm doing. You're not getting this at all. Stop. Like, just, 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 okay. Jesus said to him, no, no. And I think, by the way, if you've, if you've been presented as Jesus is not a guy who laughed, there's no way you hung out with Peter for three years without having a good sense of humor. Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except his feet. He's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not every one of you, not all of you are clean. John always tells us, reminds us of the obvious in case you forgot, especially about Judas. Um, we've talked about how John seems to be particularly offended by what Judas does. 
um, continues to bring attention back to it over and over again, way more than the other disciples do. But again, if you're 11 or 12 years old, how must this have stuck with you, stood out with you these moments? Especially later when you find out all this time Judas was looking to betray Jesus. How offended you would have been later. Maybe you looked up to Judas. Maybe you liked Judas. And then he, he, he betrays Jesus. So, so John is particularly mentioned, always mentions anything he can like this. But this is a crazy concept. Again, been washed. Jesus saying this, he, he makes it clear this is an identity change. This isn't just a, like an activity that's been done. This is not merely a descriptor. So usually we use dirty or washed as a descriptor. My car is dirty or my shoes are filthy or, or something like that. This is not just a descriptor. This is an identification. Jesus is telling them, you're either clean or you're not. If you're clean, then you're clean. Now, we may need to wash your feet off from time to time, but that doesn't affect whether you are clean. Like me, maybe you were raised in a behavioral modification version of Christianity that is about, it's about maintaining your cleanliness. It's about maintaining your purity. It's about washing yourself regularly, whatever. That idea of spiritually doing that versus this idea, which is, no, no, you have been washed. You are, you are clean, fundamentally, foundationally clean. Your identity has changed. God has purchased and chosen and adopted and cleansed me. If you've accepted that free gift, that's the, that's the status we have. It's an identity bestowed on us. I was a rebel wearing rebel colors. My taint was death. My sin marked me and identified me. My grime showed my status as a homeless, orphaned adversary, too proud to accept help. That's where I was. If you haven't, if, if you haven't been found by Jesus yet, so to speak, if you have not been persuaded by his gospel, that's where you are. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I came to purchase, choose, seal, adopt, and cleanse you. Identity bestowed, a pure one. Remember the song? Those of you who, who grew up in church, remember this song. Listen to this, the, the author of this, my sin. And then he interrupts himself. My sin. Interruption. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Back to what he's saying. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Spafford knew that the significance of this. He's, he's, again, my sin. And before he can even write anymore, he has to comment on oh, the bliss of this thought. All of my sin taken and nailed to the cross. We, last week we sang the hymn that has this line, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You can't get them back. You may need to have your feet dusted off from time to time, but you can't get filthy back. Once Jesus has cleansed you, you're cleansed. It's done. Colossians 2 makes this abundantly clear. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, those are just extravagant ways of saying sin. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us in the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So nailed to the cross, that's, that's the condition of our sin. Now back to, uh, back to John 13. When he had washed their feet and put the undergarment and resumed his place, he said to them, 
do you understand what I have done to you? Rhetorical with these guys. It's think it's safe to assume, no. They did not understand what he had done to them. Remember, afterward, they would. They would get it eventually. So watching John, Thursday night, watching John Keeling wash his wife's bow's feet on Thursday night. Can you imagine if he had said at the end of washing her feet, do you understand what I've done for you? Think how weird that would have been, like at that moment to go, do you understand what I have done for you? Now, I think, I think, I, I said, I told John, I think his seemed a little more flirtatious than Jesus's probably did with the disciples. But <laughs> that aside, that, I think it would have been shocking in the moment if, she, if he'd have said, do you understand what I just did for you? I think, I think she would have said, uh, you, I mean, you washed my feet, right? Isn't that what you did? Isn't it clear that the implication here is, that's not all I was doing, was washing your feet? That's not all that just happened there. Do you get it? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Nothing subtle about this. We've talked about in this last week of his life, Jesus, all, all of the sneaky kind of rabbi, kind of Yoda, Socrates type of stuff that Jesus does, that's gone during this last week. He just says stuff straight out, no question. I did this, my followers should do this. I, I imagine him, by the way, this is how I see it. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit of, a, of this kind of a teacher, especially with children or a small group or whatever. So here's what I imagine Jesus doing. They're all, they're all still reclining. Jesus is now hunkered down, speaking to their faces, right? Because they're all laying down like this, and he's speaking to them like this, and he goes, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If, he then enunciates every word, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. You should do it the way I did it. Are we clear? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Do we hear it that way? As his students, as his disciples? Do we hear it that way? Am I clear about this? You serve like I served. What is the example? To wash feet? I think he's clear. There's more to it than this. I think it's interesting that when Jesus tells us to do things like this do in remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of me. So we celebrate Passover all the time by celebrating communion. That's kind of the Christian version of the last cup and the last bread of Passover. So we do that because he said, do this. We turn it into a sacred event. When he does that kind of stuff, when he tells us to go and teach and disciple and baptize, we do that kind of stuff and we make a, a sacred thing out of it. How come we didn't turn foot washing into a sacred thing? Now, it kind of is. There are versions of Christianity that have a, a little bit, but even they don't call it a sacrament. I don't know why we don't take this more seriously. Maybe it's because we don't like washing each other's feet. Maybe that's why we don't make it more sacred is because we don't like doing it. It doesn't sound like something we want to do. So we pick the ones that are a little easier than that. I don't know. What is he modeling? He is modeling radical, strange, servant, sacrificial actions. He is practicing and modeling hospitality in a way that transcends our Western mind. Imagine foot washing. Our hospitality habits are awful. 
And listen, this is a church, we strive and we work hard to be hospitable because it's, it's kind of the lowest common denominator. This is, I mean, if you're coming and visiting, you're on our turf now, buddy. We, we should be able to let you know just how proud. That's why we have donuts and coffee and, and people greeting and golf carts and stuff like that. That's just a, a bare basic. Listen, we're so proud you're here. Um, we have a, a gentleman who greets, who someone asked him one day, like, uh, 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 there's a whole story behind this, but who asked him one day, like, why do you, why do you seem so happy about this? And he, I mean, he's just like, because uh, I'm authentically glad that you're here. Like, is there something else I'm missing here? Like, I'm really just glad you're here. Thanks for coming. It's our honor that you're here. We are honored by that. Every year we go, th- we talk through these main passages about that. Can you imagine foot washing? I think we have a, a video, a little short video of, of somebody. This is in Israel. So if you're walking on this type of stuff in those type of shoes, that's John Redfern, by the way, you can tell because he's wearing those shoes this morning. So you can, you can, like, that's what it's like. It's all rock and dirt and dust. And the only difference would be back in those days is that, it's, I mean, his feet get dirty when he's in Israel. The only difference between those days and now is there's not a bunch of, of animals walking around dropping animal poop everywhere that's being stepped in. Like, that's the only, it's just worse. It's dirty and nasty and your feet are hot and they get covered with gunk while you're walking around in there if you're wearing sandals like they were. It was a huge need, but at the same time, it was very tempting to avoid it because no one wanted to do this. This is over the top. In fact, I want you to look at this. So remember Mary? Those of you who have been here a few weeks ago, Mary washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And we talked about how shocking that would have been. Um, For a Jewish woman, her hair is her glory. The thought of her using her hair to wash his feet is unthinkable. But it's also something that is clear when it comes to hospitality. We, the passage we teach through every year a couple of times about hospitality is Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, Abraham says, let me go get some feet, some water to wash your feet. In Genesis 19, Lot goes to the messengers and says, let me get water to wash your feet. In Genesis 24, where we meet Rebecca, who is famed for her hospitality throughout Scripture. One of the first things her household does is get water for the feet of her guest. In Genesis 43, when Joseph has a home in Egypt and his family comes to him, one of the first things he does is put out water for them to wash their feet. In 1 Samuel 25, Abigail washes the feet of David's men. This is Abigail, who is the, one of the other examples in the Bible of extraordinary hospitality. Partially because her husband, who is an arrogant jerk, has just offended an armed band of barbarians led by David. Abigail is smart enough to know this is a bad idea, right? And so she goes out to them and and offers every hospitality that she can offer to this group of people. And her first one is to go to David, who's the leader of this band, and say, let me wash the feet of your men. Warriors, soldiers, and by the way, it struck us this week as we're talking about this. Some of you know the Bible. What do you do? What's the, what's the instruction? If you go to a town and they don't welcome you and they don't put you in their home and they don't take care of you, which by the way is Eastern hospitality, the only, the only Southern hospitality, the only place that challenges Southern hospitality is Far Eastern hospitality or Middle Eastern hospitality. They're crazy about it over there. They'll fight to the death to defend you to this day if you're a guest. 
So what do you do in that part of the world? What do you do with a, with a town that won't show hospitality? Yeah, you shake the dust off your feet as you leave the town, which struck us this week. Why is there dust on your feet? Because no one washed your feet. And so you go, you know what? You could keep the dust. And Jesus says it would be better for other places that were destroyed than those who do that with his followers. Like there's a judgment that comes with that. It's harsh. It is this important that we model this. That Jesus has said, wash my feet. Wash, wash. I washed your feet. Now you should wash one another's feet. I don't think, and by the way, I don't think we need to have necessarily basins of water out and that, the, that, that our leadership board needs to be every Sunday up here ready to wash your feet. It wouldn't be terrible, but it's not, I don't think it's necessary because I think Jesus is transcending just the concept of washing feet. He's transcending that. It's bigger than that. It is about serving one another in our homes. Our marriages, Christian marriages, should rock because we are constantly looking for opportunities to serve the way Jesus commanded us to serve in our home with our husband and our wife, with our kids and our parents. This is what's supposed to define us in so many ways is this type of crazy, over-the-top hospitality. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, the servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Do you see what, we're, what happens when we fail to serve each other? Do you see what Jesus says we're claiming? We're claiming that we're better than him. Ouch. When, you, when we don't serve each other like he modeled, he's saying, I'm the master, you do what I say. You do it the way I do it. And we go, no, I figured out a better way to do it than that. I think this would be better. You've heard me reference over and over again. So millions of dollars spent. We live in an awesome age when research can be done and disseminated in amazing ways. And over the last 10 or 15 years, two or three different groups, some Christians, some not, have done fantastic research on what makes marriage work. It turns out, you ready for this? If you're taking notes and you're married and you write this down, it turns out that in order to make marriage work, you need to be nice to each other. I know, right? In fact, ready? If in the worst times you're nice to each other at a ratio of five to one, this, I'm telling, they've narrowed it down to this. If even when you're in conflict and not doing well with each other, if you'll be nice to each other, five to one, positive. And when the good times you're nice to each other, 20 to one, then you, have, or you are essentially a master at marriage. That's it. Don't you wish someone had told us about that? I don't know, like 2,000 years ago they had said, Someone have just said, listen, if you'll serve each other, that's my way. Turns out when we do things God's way, it's amazing how often it works out. Our lack of listening to this indicates that we think we're better than him. Incidentally, this exemplifies once again the need for community worship and service. We need the community of our home, the community of our family, the community of our friends, the community of a church gives us the opportunity to follow Jesus' teaching and serve one another well. Last thought right here on today's topics. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, this is the same word. If you grew up in church, you remember the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The word here, blessed's a tough word. The word here, happy, is part of it. Happy to do this, blessed to do this. 
What I liked best is, especially in this day and age, one of the definitions is to be envied. You are someone who should be envied if you do these things. We're in a culture where we're constantly trying to get each other to envy us. It's the main purpose of social media, I think. It's to try to make other people wish they were us. We throw out, because we always put the good stuff on there. Look at this. Look at this cool vacation I'm on. Look at this cool opportunity I've got. Look at how, what a great parent I am. Look at what a great spouse I am. Look at, look at all these cool things I've got going on, right? Um, the ones I love best are the ones that have like a Bible and a cup of coffee and a, and a notebook or something like that. And it's like, I'm sitting right now having time alone with God and all of you. Right? That's what that's. Anyway. Um, it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm not questioning your motives if that's you, by the way. That's just like... Oh, good. I'm glad you are. That's, that's good. Um, glad you recorded that. I think we create that sense. If you are discontent, if you're discontent with life, if you're discontent with the life that you have, Jesus says, I've got a solution for you. You want to be in such a happy and blessed place that you would be envied by others? Then do it the way I tell you. Follow my way. That will create this for you. You'll be in such a state of contentedness. Now, you may still have clinical depression, by the way. You may still be in a tough situation. You may still lose your job. You may be persecuted. In fact, by the time we get to John 14, he's going to tell you, you will suffer and struggle. But there's something about following Jesus that gives us a sense that other people, when they get to know us, would go, I would love to have that. So I want to pray over us for these blessings. So would you go ahead and stand, if you will, we're going to do a little invitation at the, time of our, at the end of our services at this time. We invite you to respond in some way. Now listen, the assumption is if you've heard God's word today and it's spoken to your heart and the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, there's probably something you need to do inside. And so you may need to sit there and pray. You may need to kneel where you are and pray. You may need to go find someone and apologize to them. You may need to turn to your spouse and say, you know what, I've not served you well. And I'm going to change that. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to try to grow in that. Maybe, maybe you look to your spouse and say, you know what, this, this once or twice a year going to church thing isn't cutting it. We need to find a community to invest in. For some of you, you've been investing and you've already spoken to our welcome home team and you're going, you know what, it's time for me to join this church and start and get to work with the mission of this church. In a second when we're singing, that's a good time to come let us know. Um, you know what the Spirit need, has led you to do. You may need to come up here and pray here or someplace else. This is between you and God. So let me pray, and then you'll have the opportunity to respond as the Spirit leads. Um, and John will close us out, and one of those options will be to sing. Father, thank you so much for the goodness of who you are, and I thank you for all these people who are here, all these men and women and families represented, and I pray you would pour, pour out your blessings on them. Um, Lord, to be faithful, um, to get up on an Easter morning, to come and experience community, to worship you together, to serve you together, to learn together, to engage together. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And any who are here, Lord, who do not have a church home um, and have been wandering around or bouncing or whatever, Lord, I, I pray that you would help them to find a place where they can serve. There's so many, you have planted so many great churches here in Tyler. They're across the street. They're down the street. They're everywhere, Lord. Bible-believing churches that will lead us to follow you and serve the way your son said, that will put us in an enviable condition of being your son's followers. And I pray that everybody here will find one of those churches. And if it's here, Lord, we'd be honored. So Lord, I thank you and I praise you for what you're doing in people's lives. I pray that we would listen seriously to what your son said about if we're gonna be his disciples and model him, we need to do it his way. 
not as a behavioral modification, but as an expression of who we are in him. If anyone here doesn't know your son, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to them and that they would come and pray and put their faith in your son. Again, we thank you, Lord, for all of it. Lead us now and guide us through your spirit in your son's name.